she had got the cancer. You have made my life so wonderful. Take that with you too, okay? I know that you love me. Your mother can't be with you anymore. I can't believe it. It's been a decade since you've been gone. Mama, I miss you. I miss sitting with you in the front yard. Still figuring out how to keep living without Welcome to episode five of Hello, My Mom is Dead. My name is Molly McGlynn, and I'm a writer and director of film and television in Los Angeles. And I guess now I'm a podcaster, which is something I didn't envision for myself, but here we are. I got to say I'm loving it. Just a reminder that if you have been listening to the podcast and liking it, please maybe rate it or leave a comment on Apple Podcasts or subscribe on Spotify. Maybe tell a friend. It really does help get it to more people who may not come across it otherwise. So thank you in advance. Things are going pretty well here. I was in a bit of a funk for a few weeks after coming back from Ireland, and a lot of that was due to getting knocked down by a bad round of COVID. So I'm happy to be feeling better just physically and mentally. And June is typically a tough month for me. June 28th is my death anniversary of my mom. So leading up to that just feels like the body keeps the score. If you know, you know, we would like it to stop keeping the score, but we cannot control this. I am so excited about our guest today. He is, he is the first man I've interviewed so far on the podcast. And he is not only the first man, but delightful and joyful. And I just came away feeling connected and lighter having spoken to him. So let me introduce him. Michael Moosey is a writer, producer, and actor. He is best known for playing Terrence in all five seasons of Kim's Convenience. He's proudly of Middle Eastern and Greek descent and aims to tell diverse and challenging stories. As a playwright, Michael's plays have been produced in Toronto, Montreal, and New York. He co-produced his first feature film, The Toll for Lionsgate, which was an official selection of South by Southwest 2020, which is currently available on Roku. His psychological thriller series, Something Undone, on CBC Gem, won the Jury's Choice Award at South by Southwest and the Best Short Series Award at Series Mania in France. You can catch Michael playing Finbar in the film All My Puny Sorrows, which is adapted from the acclaimed novel by Miriam Taves, who, if you don't know her work, check it out. She is one of the best authors and happens to be Canadian. I digress. Michael works opposite Alison Pill and Sarah Gaddon, you can also catch him in the new CTV comedy, Shelved. Michael is so infectious and joyful, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. But I do have to say that towards the end of the episode, Michael tells one of the best stories I have maybe ever heard, if not in a very long time. So please stick around. You will not be disappointed. So here we go. Let's get into my chat with Michael. Today, I am talking to Michael Musi. I am so excited to talk to Michael. Before we got rolling, I was telling him that he is the first man to be interviewed on Hello, My Mom is Dead. So welcome, Michael, the first man. 
Oh God, I love being the first man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, no pressure at all to speak on behalf of all men, of course. All men, all men. It's me. Yeah, you are all men. Michael and I started messaging after I released this podcast and you had shared with me a beautiful essay you had written for the Globe and Mail in Toronto, I think a couple years back now. And it was so beautifully written and I will share it in the show notes link, but you struck me as someone who I wanted to talk to. You also are in the comedy writing producing space and I'm Really excited to hear your perspective also about grief and masculinity and cultural backgrounds and all of that stuff. But before we get into our chat, I start off with reading the obituary for my guest mother. If you are okay with that, I'm going to read that now. It's so underwhelming, but please. Here we go. Dillis Demetria. She was born May 25th, 1960 and died March 16th, 2013. Proud mama to Marin Mike, ma-in-law extraordinaire to Stephen Kim, and fabulous wife to Georgie, Dee Dee was a force to be reckoned with. She fought a fierce fight with pancreatic cancer. She's raising a glass of wine and smiling as she watches over her nieces and nephews, cousins, in-laws, brother Pete, and sister Kath. She is waiting for ma and ba to join her. The viewing will be held at, and then we have some uh, details about the Greek Orthodox Church in Montreal. And instead of flowers, Didi would love if you can accessorize for awareness and hashtag end pan can and a link to accessorizeforawareness.com. I think that's such a beautiful obituary. What did it feel like to hear that back? <laughs> well, the thing that, the thing, all I could hear was the fact that both my ex-wife and my sister's ex-husband are listed in there. That is so funny. But yeah, I mean, it's short and sweet. It's so funny, right? I don't know if you feel this way, but as a writer, everyone expects you to write these things. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I, I When it comes to things like this, I'm kind of like the pressure because I'm a writer to to deliver something amazing. I'm like, my sister will do it. And now I'm looking at it. I'm like, man, I could have wrote something really cool, but I didn't. Yeah, it's... um. It's always weird. It's weird. It's so um, strange to distill a life into a paragraph, but I certainly got a little sense of who she was. I liked the phrase, a force to be reckoned with. Can you tell me a little bit about that force? Yeah. I mean, my mom was like, I mean, just the coolest person in the world. She was like tiny, tiny, but had so much life and energy in her and she was like, we used to call me, me and my sister used to call her like the Hulk because no one would know this side of her except for those who were unlucky enough to learn it. But man, if you pissed her off, like she would like rip your head off, like especially for her children. Like she was such a protector and she was like five, three, but she saw herself as like six, nine, like she would get into like guys' faces. She'd She'd cut people off in traffic, get out of her car, go be like, if you would wrong her, she would fuck you up. Like she had no problem. She would cut a bitch. Oh, she would cut a bitch. She would, as my mom would say, she would like rip someone in you asshole. It, you know, like yeah. she was ready to fight for what she thought was right. 
like, you know, I, oh, my mom was such a reasonable person and to get her to that point, like you really had to mess up. And if you like, if you messed with her children, like I have quite a few stories about that, like, holy, holy shit, like RIP to you. I mean, it was RIP to her, but RIP to you. <laughs> you <know? laughs> Harsh toke. Um, she sounds like someone I would love to know and be friends with. Can you tell me like what her life was like? Yeah. Um, my mom uh, grew up in a very traditional Greek household. Her parents came to Montreal a couple of years before she was born. So she was technically born in Montreal, but the household was so Greek that I always like forget that because she was so, her first language was Greek. Being Greek was a big sense of pride for her. Um, she really wanted to share that with her children. So that was a really big part of my childhood. And my mom was, uh, like I said, born and raised in Laval, just uh, a suburb of Montreal. And she first started off, I think she worked in like accounting and she had a couple of jobs that she didn't really love. And I knew when we, I knew that when I talked to her a bit about this a bit later in life, that she was like, I never really knew what I wanted to do. Like I knew I really wanted to be a mom and I was so happy being your mom, but I never really knew what I wanted to do. She st- she then started working for my father. My father makes exterior wear, like coats and jackets. And she started working for the company. Very fitting for Montreal. Very fitting, yeah. And, uh, you know, a very Greek industry as well. And so it, it, she ended up working for the family business. But she, and she worked there for about 20 years. And her work was never like who she was. She always realized that her work wasn't, what defined her and she she was okay with that. What she took great pride in was the fact that besides just being a killer mom, she was like everybody's go-to for everything. Like you wanted to drink and chat, you wanted to scream and yell, like everyone went to Didi for it. Like she was the best. All of my cousins growing up were always, and my friends, so fucking jealous that she was my mother. And she was also everybody's mother. Like our house we had a small house and Friday and Saturday night, there was like minimum 15 people sleeping over. Our basement was just like bodies, Wow! like find a location. When, when my parents sold the house, when my mom was still alive, when my parents sold the house, I can't tell you the amount of like random calls I got from people being like, no, my home. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, no, it's my home. But they, but people took it so personally because it was everybody's home. She was everybody's mom. She was just like constantly in the kitchen cooking for everybody. She, she was also so cool. Like we, in Montreal, we got started drinking quite early. And my mom was like, early on was like, I'm not going to stop you guys from drinking because you're going to do it. And if I don't let you do it here, you're going to do it elsewhere. So she would like, literally, we would have, we would be drinking with friends at 15 in the basement and she'd be like making us drinks being like, no one's driving. You drink, fucking do what you got to do. Yeah. But you guys are staying here. You, no one's leaving. That front door's not opening do what you got to do. And what, and for some reason, like my friend's parents agreed to it too. Like, because she was, she was just like, it's going to happen anyway. Let's do it here. And the, like, Yeah. That sounds about right for Montreal. And then yeah, a Greek mom for sure. Totally. And my mom met my father, you know, when she was in her early twenties, my dad came here from the middle East when he was 18. He's, he's from a very tiny Syrian community in Turkey. So he came here and you know, didn't speak any English, only spoke Arabic. And my mom, eventually, when they started dating, and I have an amazing story to tell you in a sec about that. But when they started dating, he brought his family in from the Middle East, and they lived with us. My grandparents lived with us for 10 years. So my mom was fluent in Arabic. 
fluent in Greek, fluent in French, fluent in English. Wow. Our house was so, there was just so much going on all the time. And all of my family that came from the Middle East, we all lived in like neighboring houses. So it's just, it was like, my childhood was so vibrant and loud. Mm. And my mom just really kind of like facilitated all that. She was really just kind of the one it was always the more the merrier. It was never a mom. Can I do this? Can these people come over? It was always like, of course. Why are you asking me? Bring them. Bring them. Like, yeah. I'm like, how are you not tired? Like, how did you? How did that not bother you? But yeah, just fucking full of life. Just so full of life. I love that. As you're describing your house, it reminds me of mine is a lot as well. And I was um, born in Montreal, actually. Well, Dorval, the suburb outside of Montreal, and. Uh, my parents were from Ireland and I similarly had a mother who the door was always open and the kind of policy, if there was like extra people at the house for dinner, she'd feed them. And, you know, it was kind of an unspoken agreement that probably the next day I'd be at someone else's house. And there was a real sense of community that I so prioritize myself and feel like is missing a lot from all of our lives right now. And, you know, you said your mom, in terms of work and employment, she did maybe didn't put so much emphasis on that. But like, when you think of a life, like creating that home for all those people in your life and her life, I'm like, that is, that is a life's work. Totally. And she, she, I think she really took it that way. She felt like she had a lot of responsibility to be that person for everybody. And I, I, I mean, I'm the same, we are our moms at the end. I, I mean, I certainly am. And, you know, like my biggest goal is to be that for people and for my home to be that for people, you know, like I love hosting. I have pals over all, all the time and it's truly my, one of my greatest joys is doing that for people. And I, of course I get that from her and what a beautiful thing. I feel so lucky that she she allowed that space for like the people we love in our home. I mean, how, how how beautiful is that? Yeah. Did she ever go back to Greece or did you go with her ever? Well, yeah. So, you know, we've been wanting to go to Greece our whole lives with her and it just never worked out. We went to Turkey when we were younger and then we really wanted to go to Greece. And then finally, the year we decided to go to Greece, we went we landed in Athens. They took my mom and my dad took a different flight. They landed in Athens and my mom started vomiting. And we thought that it was from the plane or that she was catching a cold. And it really was the first indication of her pancreatic cancer. So she was starting to get jaundice in Greece. She went to a doctor in Greece where they told my dad that she probably had a tumor. She didn't know. So it was like a beautiful trip oh, Gosh, that took a really kind of like took a nosedive. And I mean, I'm so thankful that I got to go to Greece and to, to her parents' hometown with her. I mean, it sucks that she wasn't fully there and she just like was trying to push through. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I can only imagine was like excruciating pain. But I mean, I'm, I feel so lucky that I had that opportunity to go there with her. So you were 24 when she died? Yeah. And pancreatic cancer, right? Yeah, it was pancreatic cancer. And it, would, it took about seven and a half months from diagnosis for her to pass away. It was like so quick. So quick. What was her relationship with the diagnosis? And, you know, some some people may try to protect their family from it. And some people, you know, just curious to know what her relationship was. Yeah. So when my mom was first diagnosed, they told her she had a tumor uh, on her pancreas. And she didn't really know what that meant yet because there were 
there weren't enough details on it. But as soon as we found that out, I was living in Toronto also back then. And I immediately flew to Montreal to be with her and quit my job and just stayed in Montreal. And I remained there until she died, just living at home with her. But, you know, my mom, and I kind of get this from her too, is a little bit of the, I don't want to know. I don't want to, I don't want to know because, because if I know too much, I won't be able to to fight. Mm-hmm. She didn't say it in so many words, but I could totally recognize it because we are the same person and I could recognize it in her that she didn't want to know that much. And I remember I sat her down one day and I said, do you want me to tell you the information? Do you want it to go through me? Do you want me to make a rule right now that everything comes through me and I tell you? She's like, no, no, like everything was about protecting our kids. But I was like, mom, I want to do this for you. Will you allow me to do that for you? And I could tell that she so badly wanted me to do that. So I made a rule in the hospital and I was an, an asshole about it. And But I said, every fucking thing goes through me. And I tell my mom in the way that I know she will want to receive it. Mm-hmm. And that was a really uh, hard responsibility. Mm -hmm. But the hardest part was that when we found out the extent of it, me, my dad and my sister had to make the decision to almost not share the full extent of it to my mom. Mm -hmm. And we asked her at that point, and it was clear to us that she didn't want to know she just wanted to try and fight through this. So there was a part of my mom up until the moment she died that she didn't really know how sick she was, but she knew, but she didn't want to know. And I feel a bit of guilt about that, like to a certain degree, but at the same time, I have to remember that doctors would come and want to talk to her. She'd be like, Oh, like, Oh, you can't tell me. And I was like, you know, I know that that's what she wanted. And I kind of respected what she wanted. But of course there's a part of me that was like, fuck, did we like, could we have helped her deal with it instead of, denying it yeah it was a tricky it was a tricky decision that i'm still that i still think about sometimes for sure but ultimately i mean look me and my sister moved there for seven and a half months we didn't leave her side we did anything that we read that could work that could that anybody in the anybody in the internet i don't who cares who it was yeah whatever reddit user says we try if someone was like she needs to chew gum for an hour and a half i was like get to chewing you know what i mean like anything we bought a like $10,000 juicer. I don't know if you heard of the Gerson therapy. Like we were like giving her coffee enemas. We were doing everything in the world to save her life. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I have the comfort at least now I have the grief, but I have also the, the comfort that I, I, I truly did everything I could to save my mother's life and I couldn't do it, but not for lack of like trying and or lack of love. Like, mm-hmm. fuck, I did as uh, Yeah, I really did. And she, so yeah, to answer your question in a really long way, her relationship with her diagnosis was really tricky and she didn't want to die. She, and she never accepted it and she didn't want it to happen. And, and it did. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And it sounds like you gave her the absolute best version of reality that you knew that was best for her. Yeah, I think so. But it is, yeah, there was some tough moments with my mom where she did not want to go and she told me and it's this feeling that someone you love more than anything in the world is slipping away to somewhere you don't know where it is and you can't go with them on that journey. And it's, 
you know, it changes you on a cellular level, which I think you know. I wanted to read just a little bit from the Globe and Mail piece that you wrote, sort of elaborating on this that I thought was really beautiful. So Michael writes, she was terrified of dying. And when she told me early on that having me by her side brought her comfort, that's where I stayed. If a doctor so much as wanted to say hi to my mom, he had to ask me first. I became a human shield, protecting her from the oncologist's poor bedside manners and the nurse's displeased size at my mom's potassium levels. I was unrecognizable even to myself. I was a true pillar of strength. Or at least this is what people might have seen. Heck, it was what I saw. But deep down, even beyond my own understanding, I was crumbling. I was such a warrior for my mom that I forgot to fight for myself. I thought that was so beautifully articulated and just wanted to know more about ways in which you forgot to take care of yourself and how beyond her death, you've been able to take care of yourself. I am the type of person, I'm riddled with anxiety and it's something that I deal with all the time and I mostly deal with it with like minutia. Mm -hmm. Like everything stresses me out. But when I am called upon an emergency, I'm like, I'm the guy you want there, (laughs) you know? But I'm not the guy you want there if, you know, it's raining. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, when when that happened, I really was unrecognizable to myself. Like, to give you an example, this is such a movie moment. The way that I found out about the extent of my mother's cancer, it was early on and my sister was still in Toronto. She had like two more days of work before she was taking her leave. And my mom had to stay overnight because she had just got her stent put in. And she, she was good. At this point, we thought it would be a different type of tumor. We thought it, we thought she might even be okay. And she had to stay overnight. And I asked my mom, I said, do you want me to stay or you want dad to stay? And she's like, no, go home. Let your dad stay, whatever. I was like, look, you can either stay with dad and he's going to snore or you and I can watch like Grey's Anatomy and we can like go to bed and and, and I could sleep anywhere. Like, who do you actually want? She's like, I want you. I was like, of course. And so we sent my dad home. And then the, the nurses keep, kept coming in and her vitals were really kind of concerning. And, and then they moved her to another room and I was kind of like, what's going on? What's going on? And I'm in the room with her. And she's like, is everything okay? I was like, yeah, mom, your vitals are just kind of weird. And they're just kind of checking it out. And and, I'm, and I go outside to call my dad to say, I think something's wrong. Because what actually was happening was she was going into septic shock because of the stent. Mm. And I go outside to call my dad. And I'm going to call my dad. And I hear a nurse or a doctor on, on the other side saying, yes, and it's stage four pancreatic cancer. And then I look at him and I, and I look up. I'm sorry, I look up at the woman and she's standing by the desk. And she goes, aha, Demetria Dillis. So... I, we didn't even know it was stage four. We didn't even know that we're officially calling it pancreatic cancer at this point. I'm assuming the results had come in overnight or fucking something or, or I didn't know about it, but that was how I like found out about it. And then I heard my mom go, she used to call me Kali because in Greek, my name is Mikali. So she goes, Kali. And I go back in the room. She goes, is everything okay? Mm. And I was like, I just found out that my God. mom might be dying right now. And I was like, yeah, mom. Yeah, mom. Everything's great. Everything's f- and I like. I was like instantly like nauseous. Ugh, I, those little lies to tell someone to protect them is a special kind of pain. Yeah, very much, very much. And at that moment, 
when I was able to push through, this is what I was getting at. When I was able to push through, my dad came and he was a basket case. And then I called my sister the next day and she was a mess. I realized that I was, I was the strength in the family right now. And that I was the one who can really hold us together. And I gave myself a position, an unrealistic position that I kept up for seven and a half months where I didn't let anyone see any cracks. I was Mr. Positive. I was fucking making jokes. Her first chemotherapy, I like did a choreographed dance to like a Beyonce song while she was getting injected. Like it crazy. Which song? Oh God. You know what? It may- maybe it was Rihanna. I think it was Rihanna. <laughs> I love this. Uh, I think it was Rihanna. <laughs> I can't remember the song. My sister will probably remember. And the, like she was supposed to get her chemo in another room and I made her do it in a private room. And I told the nurse, I was like, listen, I want to dance for her. <laughs> so like you need you need to do it in the room and it was like you know and she was pissing her pants laughing while getting her first chemo like i was like just so badly trying to make this the best experience for everybody and i i wasn't looking out for myself and and i would constantly i i i was sleeping on the couch of my parents condo at the time and i was i just remember constantly shoving the pain aside and being like no 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 tomorrow maybe maybe you could deal with that tomorrow maybe you could and I didn't deal with it for, for seven and a half months. I didn't let myself feel sad. I didn't let myself feel scared. I just like, you have a job, do your job. And then the day that she died, I crumbled. I just fucking crumbled. And I couldn't write her obituary. I couldn't, I, I, I couldn't do funeral planning. My sister, my sister, we like swapped positions. I became useless. Like I, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. And so, yeah, I didn't take care of myself and I really should have. I really should have prioritized myself because I paid for it. And I really, her death really fucked me up. It really fucked me up. And it took me a while to finally go talk to someone about it. And when I did, as most of these stories go with therapy, you realize what the fuck was I waiting for? Yeah. Like, what was I waiting for? And don't get me wrong. Like the first couple of therapists I saw, they blew and I was like, oh, therapy sucks. But when I met one that, that really helped me, I was like, Jesus Christ, Mike. Where have you been, Mike? I needed you. Where have you been? Where have you been? And then I learned to, I, and I finally have learned how to prioritize my mental health. There was an interview I read, and you're talking about therapy and how difficult it was to find a good fit for you. And you said, quote, but still therapy was not a thing that was a possibility in our house. It was for Canadians, not for Greeks or the Arabs. It wasn't something we brought into our lives. And I think just referencing the cultural context is so important. And I wanted to know that with your own journey with mental health and therapy, if that has impacted any other family members? Like, what does your dad think? What does your sister think? Uh, about therapy? Yeah. And if your openness and willingness has prompted their own. Yeah. I mean, my dad went to go see a therapist, which he probably went to like three sessions realistically, but like, I was floored that he would do that. Like, we did therapy was so not, so not a thing that we discussed in the house. It was so not it was so not a thing that Arab people did. Like for my father to go to therapy is like, it was a big deal. Did he just kind of go on his own accord or? Oh God, no, no, God, no. I, 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 abs- 
Oh God, no, 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 no. I talked to him about it for like three months, you know? And my dad was like, there's a bit of like a, a weird kind of shame about being single when you're older in the Arab community. Like my father being wifeless and going to dinner parties alone, he like really, really struggled with that stuff. Uh, my heart is hurting right now. <laughs> I know, I know. He hated it. He just like hated not being coupled up. He hated that my mom wasn't there. And I was like, dad, you gotta like, you gotta work on that because that's not a way to live to just want and need a partner just because you, you want the seat next to you to be filled. Like, I'm so sorry, mom's not here. But if mom's not going to be here, you got to learn to live your life on your own, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what finally made him go to therapy because he wouldn't, he didn't go early on when it was just about the grief, but he started going and he didn't really stick to it, but, but he went, he went to it. And my dad is great. Like my dad is so, my dad is not my uncle. He's not like my uncles where they're a little bit more hard headed and stubborn. And maybe it's because my uncle's all married Arab woman and my dad married a Canadian Greek woman who told him, who like told him how it fucking was, <laughs> you know? So my dad, my dad was like past being stubborn about this stuff. I was like, he's like, okay, fine. I'll go. You know, like that was my attitude about it. Yeah. And my sister did as well. My sister went more to like spiritual healers, like, She's not very spiritual at all, but she just was like, I can kind of like get on board with something that feels a little bit more like I can maybe feel closer to her Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to deal with my grief. But yeah, it's, it's certainly a cultural thing that is still very true in my family. I mean, they haven't stuck to it. And, and you know what? And I'm not, I, I like, I mean, look, I wrote a whole article about therapy and I haven't seen mine in about like six weeks. Like, you know, <laughs> I got, I'll give him a call as soon as we're done. I promise. But send, send Mike an email. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm very much like, I have an amazing girlfriend right now who like, I could talk to about these things all the time. And sometimes I do feel like I can replace therapy with a loved one. Mm-hmm. And I continue to do that sometimes, but but yeah, therapy really did save me. It really did. And it, it, even though, even if I don't stick to therapy, it has given me the tools to be able to deal with my grief when they come, when it comes and my stress and my depression about it, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, I mean, I, I wrote that article in, in a moment where I really worried about some of my male friends and male cousins that thought therapy was not a thing that guys should do like it was a crazy it's a crazy way of thinking that like for some reason men are built differently that we can handle this stuff on our own and it's like fucking newsflash we can't that's why i loved that piece you wrote on mental health so much because yes it is so important for men to work on their emotional healing whether that you know Therapy is a privilege that not everyone can access, but regardless, men need to seek community within each other, be emotionally vulnerable, and see role models of that. Yeah, like, I'm just curious to know, you know, with masculinity and grief, has your grief made you think about masculinity and sort of how you've been conditioned to be in the world? Well, I certainly felt that way as I was talking about, like when she was ill to, to handle it, like quote unquote, a man, right? Like I felt that pressure. No, you know what? No, I don't think I, I don't think I did. I think I'm very, very lucky because the majority of the people in my life are women. 
And yeah, I'm really close with my sister. As I said, I have a beautifully supportive girlfriend. And I would say like my closest, closest friends are all women for the most part, you know? And so I'm very comfortable with emotion. Yeah. You seem that way. Yeah. Like I've never shied away from that. Like I, I don't cry often or very, yeah, I don't cry often at all, but I don't think it's, I mean, maybe it is, maybe it is a bit of, you know, male pride that I have in crying, but I, 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 I fucking share, I pour my heart out to my friends and help, and therapy certainly helped me with that as well. Just being really open. I feel, I feel no shame around pouring my heart out. And that's such a beautiful quality. It makes me really happy. Yeah. I love it. I think, thank God, you know, like I do think that, especially as an actor and as a writer and like what we have to do, like, thank God. Yeah. I don't have, I don't feel shame around that. And why, and why should I? You really own it. You mentioned your beautifully supportive girlfriend. What did you learn about women from your mom? What did Didi teach you about women? Oh my God. That's such a good question. Didi, ta- I mean, Didi taught me a lot of just about people in general and how to treat people and how to be kind. You know what my mom taught me early on about women was understanding that, you know, when I moved to New York, I remember having some conversations about my mom. I moved to New York when I was 19 years old. And I remember her telling me, I was always a really sensitive boy. I was always a very like, yeah, I was sensitive and I was emotional always. And my mom always said like, you know, we know that and everyone knows that, but like, don't assume that everybody knows that. And don't assume that you are always to be trusted because deep down, you're such a good person. She's like, you know, make sure that when you are dealing and you are being uh, very close with a woman that you're, that you're sensitive to the fact that for reasons you can't understand, she may not trust you. Wow. Yeah. It's so funny because I'm such a, I, 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 I like, I think I'm the least threatening man in the world. And at the same time, I remember one day I was walking down the street in New York and there was a girl in front of me and just me being close to her. She kept turning around and looking at me and, and I was like, Oh fuck. Right. Right. Like, she doesn't know that she she doesn't know that I'm that I'm a stupid actor, you know. Like <laughs> she has no idea who I fucking am, and and I remember my mom kind of prepper preparing me for that stuff. I know that's not a great answer. No, that's so interesting because yeah, it sounds like she's talking a little bit about how women sometimes may be mistrusting of men. Yes, and rightfully so. And she was like, you need to be a little, you need to be understanding of that. You need to, you need to be understanding of that. And you need to prove yourself a lot of times because you're not going to get that trust right away with, with people in general. But, you know, I started dating my ex-wife. So we worked, we dated since high school and we were, you know, we were 15 and. Whoa. You went from 15 to marriage. Yeah. To 23. Well, we, we got divorced when we were 20. Eight. So, you know, like, Whoa. yeah, long, long, long relationship. And, you know, my, my mom was very, very much always asking me how things were in my relationship, if there were things that were upsetting her and what could have, like, and what I could do to help that. Like, she was really involved in my relationship. But I don't, I can't think of a thing that she taught me necessarily about women, but she treat, she taught me so much on how to treat people. And I think because this might be a naive answer, but because most of the people in my life are women, I've never 
looked at treating a woman and treating a man any differently in my mind. You know, it was always it was like for me, because I was with a girlfriend at 15 and I had so many female friends, you know, it was so, so funny to me when I was single, a friend of mine told me she had a crush on me. And I was like, what? Mind blown. Mind blown. And I was like, but we're friends. <laughs> and then I remember having this conversation with my sister. I was like, my friend told me she liked me. And she's like, Mike, you're single now and whatever. And I'm like, but she's my friend. Yeah, the contract is friend. That's what it says. It was friends. We were supposed to be friends. And she was like, yeah, but those lines can get blurred now, Mike. And I was like, what? Like, it was a crazy thing to me, you know? Molly, I, I am so bad at answering every single one of your questions. No, n- you're so good at storytelling and painting a picture. And I love it. And yeah, like that question, even about like, what did you learn about women? You know, it's not even necessarily in the like sitting down and being like, well, Michael, this is how women are. It's like you learn a lot about femininity and being a woman from your mother, just through observation and how she moves through the world. You know, if there is mistrust or, you know, a healthy relationship with, you know, men and all of that. And I can only speak from my experience being a daughter of a woman. And I think that's loaded for a whole bunch of reasons in terms of body image and sex and all of that and trying to protect the daughter. But I've always kind of just wondered what sons learn from their moms about. Yeah. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I'm going to like email you in like two weeks and be like, oh, wait, I got it. Yeah, feel free. I mean, it, there's truly no right answer. It's just something that I myself am curious about. Your mom sounds positively delightful. Where would you say her blind spots were or things that y- you just frustrated you about her? My mom, I, and I mentioned this briefly, but my mom worried I, I, this, I'm not a doctor, but pancreatic cancer is what killed her on paper. But I think it was worry. You know, like I, I always have said this, like my mom worried to an unhealthy degree, especially about her kids. And it took over her life. And I really wish that she dealt with that in a way that she would protect herself a little bit from those things. Like she didn't sleep a wink until we were home. And we, like I said, Montrealers, like we're clubbing till 3 a.m. Edie's on the couch waiting. Okay, you're home. I'll go to bed. When something happened to us, as small as it was, she took it upon herself to like fix the problem. And I just really wish she put herself first a little bit because she really, she, I can't think of a moment where she did, you know, I would say that was her, that was her biggest fault. Could you imagine what kind of life your mom would have had if she didn't have you and your sister? Oh God, what would Didi do? Like any little passion or just something about her that maybe if she had more time. Yeah, I mean, my mom was obsessed with traveling and she was obsessed with films and she loved the theater. Like my my favorite memories of my mom are when she, she used to come visit me in New York once a month. And she would say she was coming to clean my apartment, which she also did. But, um, but she would come and we would just go see six plays yeah and just go eat eat and you know and the thing that was so lovely about that with my mom is that it was so such an amazing thing to be a part of a of a discovery of one of her passions in the moment that it happened because she had never gone to the theater before and and seeing 
how my mom was like, where are we going next? And like, when I come back, should we go see this thing? And it was, I love that. I know. And, 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 and you go, Oh man, you, you got married young. You got, you had kids young and there's so much that you could have discovered. And it's, it's so beautiful and sad at the same time. Cause you're like, you know, my mom loved that. I was an actor. Like she just fucking loved it. Like she thought it was the cool. If I booked a commercial, it was like, I booked, you know, like game of Thrones. Yeah. Like she was so pumped for every gig. When I got into, I went to the school called the American Academy of Dramatic Arts in New York. When I got the acceptance letter, she, she got the letter and she brought it in. And then I opened it up and she grabbed my arms and she ran outside and we just jumped on the front lawn together. Oh, Like she was so, and I was like, you could have been a fucking killer actor. Like she could have, she had it in her, you know, and she had the passion for it. And she like, she was so proud to be the mom of an actor. But sometimes I think like, Man, Didi could have done it. Yeah. Didi, she was so fucking funny. She was so funny that I'm like, you could have done something so wonderful. And man, there's a there's a little world out there in which she in which she could. Yeah, for sure. I it's fun to kind of imagine that sometimes. I have the number 55 tattooed on my wrist, and it's because so my mom, when she married my dad, had only had a high school education and moved from Ireland to Canada, had five kids. After my parents split up, she put herself through undergrad, went to Concordia, eventually got her master's, but she started taking creative writing classes. And I still have her work, just an incredible writer. There is no doubt in my mind that if she didn't have to deal with five kids and breast cancer and putting herself through school, this would have been something that she would have succeeded at. And there was a poem that she wrote that I found. And the first line was, I was 55 years old before I could call myself a writer. And that number is so meaningful to me. And I have it on my wrist because, you know, like you, I have the privilege of making a career out of self-expression. And it's just a reminder that it is such a privilege to get to do what we do and she only was starting to tap into that gift she had and then died a few years later, like similar to what you're saying about your mom falling in love with theater. But on the flip side, like how beautiful it is to witness our moms who sound like they both dedicated their lives to their families in a lot of ways, fall in love with something creative. Yeah, that is so beautiful. I love that story with the 55. I have, I have my mother's signature tattoo. Oh my gosh. So beautiful. Michael showing me a beautiful forearm tattoo. I love tattoos. I find them so cathartic and just a really nice way to memorialize someone. I I have a few. What would your mom think about your tattoo? She'd be like, don't say, yeah, say mine. Be like, you didn't have to do that. I know. I got this off like a grade one report card uh, that my mom had to sign to say that she read. And it was like the only good report card I've ever got in my goddamn life. And I love it. I mean, I love, how can I, how can I not? Like, uh, it's just, she had such a beautiful signature and it always looked the same. And I just fucking love it. I love it. So when I see it, I'm just like, yeah, I, I do think it's so special. Tattoos are awesome for that stuff, you know? You know, Molly, instead of you asking me a question, can I tell you a story instead? Yeah, I love stories. I feel like this one is a really good story to show who my mom truly was. Okay, hit me. And the reason I'm telling you this story is because it recently came up and I 
asked my dad to tell me the full story. And I didn't really know the story in its full extent until my dad told me. And I just think it's so fucking awesome. So my, my, my dad came from a pretty poor family in Turkey. They sold a cow to send him to the States to make a life for himself. He had to leave the States. He came to Canada and he became a jeweler. And when he was a jeweler, he was out on his lunch break one day and he realized he was running late and he went inside the building where the jeweler, the jeweler was like, it was on like Maisonneuve and it was like the like 10th floor of one of those old buildings. And the cops were in there because somebody had stolen something from one of the shops. And they asked my dad, he's like, oh, no, 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 I work here. I work here. I work on the 10th floor. But my dad didn't have paperwork. Mm-hmm. So when they brought him up and they went to the boss and they said, does he work here? They were like, no. So my dad was getting deported. Oh, my God. So this is a Thursday. My dad finds out he's getting deported on Tuesday. And he's like, what do I do? What do I fucking do? He is accepting it. And he goes, he lived above a bar. And he's sitting in the bar. and He's crying. And he meets a, a woman comes up to him and talks to him. And this woman was a sex worker. And she, my dad told her the situation. And she was like, I'll marry you. The, a Canadian love story. I know, I know. Well, it's not my, the, the, the the sex worker was not my mother. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, if, if if she was, no problem. Just an aspect of Dee Dee's life we hadn't addressed yet. Yes, exactly, exactly. So he marries this sex worker on a Sunday. He convinces his uh, a priest that came from his like that's from the same village as him in Turkey to marry them. He marries this woman on Sunday. On Monday, he files the paperwork. He gets to stay in Canada. He lives with this woman for about three months or so. They remain really close friends. This woman said, I'll do it for $1,000. My dad was broke. My dad was homeless for about the first two months he lived in Montreal. So like at this point, he's, he, has, he has no money. He's like, I can't pay you right now, but I promise I will. I will, I will, I will. They lose contact before she, they leave. This woman, her name was Suzanne. She said, you know what? Don't even bother it. You don't need to pay me. I'm just so happy that I was able to help you. And they never, they didn't speak. Suzanne. That's so beautiful. I know, Suzanne. Anyway, my dad meets my mom. My dad's bringing his family over from the Middle East. He starts his own company. And my mom finds the marriage certificate. And she knew that he married. He was very vague about his story on how he was able to stay here. So he came home from work and then he said, your mom was sitting down and she had the certificate in front of her. And he goes, she goes, I want the whole story. Hell yeah. So she tells him and he, and he goes, she goes, okay, because George, you need to find this woman. And you need to give her the money that you promised her. Oh my God, I love her. And, she, and my dad goes, well, you know, and she's like, no. Like, he's like, she was so pissed. She's like, you, that woman saved your fucking life, George. And now you bought a home. You're able, he's like, they were still like so strapped on cash. She's like, you're finding this woman. My mom made my, finally helped my dad find her. She had married someone. She was living in Florida at the time she came back. And my mom put, $1,000 in an envelope. And and my dad called, found Suzanne and said, we're going to meet for lunch. And she gave my dad the envelope. And she said, give this to Suzanne and thank her for the life she gave you. Like, what an incredible gift she gave you. So he goes, he goes to, to lunch with her, he tells her, he gives her the envelope, he leaves, she comes home. And my mom put $5,000 in the envelope and she didn't tell my dad. And my, my dad was like, we don't have money. Like, we can't pay. Like, she's like, George. She fucking saved your life. What are you even talking about? It's even embarrassing to give her five, to give her fucking 10. Like, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh my God. And she's like, as a matter of fact, you're calling her again. She's coming to your shop and you're designing her two jackets. What? 
Yes, get Suzanne the jackets of her dreams. I know. And I was like, and that was like, my, my mom was just so fair. So like, you got to make it right. You've got to do what's right. You know, and I just love that story because that was so her. I'm so glad you told me that story. What an incredible story that says so much about who your mom was and like women supporting women. And like, there is a version where there's jealousy and anger and didn't, you know, and frustration and all this stuff for not getting the full story. And just what a beautiful response. Yeah. Yeah. She was awesome. Yeah. I think that's one of the best stories I've heard in a long time. So. Oh my God, Molly, don't write about it. I am. I, I, I absolutely won't. It's too specific. Thank you. What are things that like activate missing your mom lately? Wins. Like I still feel the urge to call her on a win, you know, like a booking. Mm -hmm. She hasn't met my girlfriend. She hasn't met my sister's daughter who's named after her. When I see any, any milestone, any win, I I'm so angry that she's not here to see it. You know, is that, would you agree with that? A hundred percent. I mean, like the highs of your life are sort of irrevocably altered in a way. Like they're, they're, bittersweet instead of just existing in that pure joy or elation. You're always missing someone. You know, I had my recent film premiere at South by a few months ago and one of the best nights moments of my life. And, you know, when I'm going to sleep at night, you're just left thinking of them and missing them. But at the same time, I'm grateful that I'm aware of how precious life is and my point of view on everything is everything is a little bit sweet and it's a little bit sour simultaneously. Totally. And it's, you know, we're how lucky, I mean, I feel so lucky that I have a mom that I miss so terribly that I love so terribly that I want that the opportunity to talk about her for an hour is like so exciting to me. I'll take I'll take 24 years of that over 60 of a bad one, you know. I had a great a great fucking mom. I had I couldn't I couldn't have picked a better one, you know. And so I didn't have her for enough, but I had her. No one else had her. I mean, my sister did, but you know, no one else had her. You know, and man, I feel lucky. My mom knew that like one of my biggest dreams was to be on a sitcom. Like I just wanted to be on a sitcom. And then I was on a sitcom for five years and she has no idea. And that really fucking blew. Like when I had really big episodes and I would sit around with my sister watching an episode and I was like, my mom would be dying to watch this, right? Like she would be so fucking proud and happy. And, She'd be jumping and up sucks. and down on the lawn like she was when you got your acceptance letter. On the lawn, that's it. Yeah. What would be your advice to Michael at 24? I would say it's going to be okay. It's going to be hard. And you're going to get to a point where it doesn't hurt in the way that it hurts. The thing that I kind of just said to you, like, you had her. And that's the most important thing is that you had her and that you you are who you are because of her and, and you're going to be okay because of her. I, I And I would tell myself that um, I'm so proud of who I was at 24 and how I handled that. I'm so proud of what I was able to give my mom in the last seven months of her life. I wasn't always the best son, 
but I was a really fucking good one at the end, you know, and maybe it doesn't make up for the times I gave her a hard time, but I made it my life, my life's mission in that moment to save her life. That she felt that, like she felt that love. And I, I wouldn't even, I don't know that I would give advice. I would say good, good stuff, buddy. <laughs> I love that. It's, that is so beautiful. If your mom were to text you today, what would she say? Well, sometimes she called for some right reason. She really liked calling when, like, as a funny thing, she'd call me bitch. <laughs> so she'd probably be like, I'm back, bitch. That's what she'd say. Oh, my God. That is incredible. She'd just be like, yeah, what's yeah. up, bitch? <laughs> and she referred to herself as bitch, too. So I think she'd probably be like, bitch is back. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. If there is something you would like us to know about Dee Dee, what would you like us to know? That if she knew that she could bring you any kind of joy, uh, she would do everything she can to deliver, even if you were a stranger. What an incredible gift that is in a person. And we just met for the first time face-to-face today, and I definitely see that you have so much of that woman in you, and you're so joyful and open and vulnerable and alive and i think she would be really fucking proud of you bitch (laughs) thank you i think she would too i think she would too before we sign off is there anything you want to share that you're working on or anything what you're working on that you want to plug or something you've watched lately just anything you want to share yeah i actually there's something really exciting that's coming up but i don't know how much i can say but what i will say is that i've done a show for two seasons on cbc gem called something undone it's a psychological thriller and uh it was a digital series and we thought it was dead but it's not dun 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 i watched the trailer and it looks so amazing can you just give us a log line for that yeah, uh, it's about about a man named Freed and his partner in business and in life, Joe, and they run a true Canadian crime podcast called Unsettled. And while Freed is in Newfoundland uncovering the murders of a family in the 1980s, Joe is at home on kind of getting her house, her mom, her late mother's house ready for sale. And she does the Foley work, so all the sound effects on the podcast. And while she is while she is doing the sound work in the home, she starts to pick up sounds in the house that lead to a dark family secret. That's not a logline, and I know it's not a logline, but it's a short synopsis. Yeah, perfect. And involves uh, mother loss and spooky houses. Yeah, I wonder where we pulled some of that info from. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Okay, so Something Undone on CBC Gem. Something Undone, yeah. And, you know, I've done a couple of acting gigs like that. Have uh, I just did a, a fun movie called Young Werther. Uh, I, I, I wrote my first uh, rom-com movie of the week that's coming out this year. Just a lot of, you know, a lot of, li- a lot of little things. Where can people find you? Oh, uh, at my home, because I don't leave. Yeah, give us your address. They <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, can find me on Instagram, at Michael Moosey. Uh, uh, don't even go on Twitter. I haven't tweeted since like a, the Kim's Convenience like, finale. Okay, we won't go on Twitter. We'll go on Michael Moosey on Instagram. Yeah, that's it. And then, like, I don't know, a sandwich shop in Toronto's west side, like, 
I'll be there. Which sandwich shop? Oh, probably Phil does. Have you been on Dover Court? I haven't, but I will go there next time I'm in Toronto. I love a sandwich. Have you been to Batty Alley Pizza on Dover Court, by the way? No. Okay, Molly, get back here. <sighs> I'm missing out. I'm really missing out. You're missing out. Yeah. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for talking to me, Michael. You were a joy. A plus for being the first man on Hello, My Mom is Dead. Aced it. I did it. Thank you so much for having me, Molly. This is lovely. You're so welcome. Okay, have a good one. You too. Just a reminder that if you like the podcast, or frankly, even if you hate it, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This helps boost ratings and make sure that people can come across the podcast who may need it. As always, I really appreciate all of your support and would love to hear from you and what you think. And I'm sorry you're here, but glad that you are. Thanks, friends. Love you.